So we're going to open our Bibles this morning to James chapter number one uh, today as we continue our grassroots theology series. We're getting down to brass tacks right down on the human level in terms of biblical theology, and that's what we love James uh, so much for because he makes theology very real. It's not a highbrow kind of thing that's just talked about in academic institutions. Theology is real and faith is real. And we need to know not only what it is, but how to apply it. So James chapter 1 will be where we are this morning. Welcome once again those of you that are with us online. We're very thankful for you and pray God has a wonderful word for you as well as for those who are gathered together in the house today. They say that the most challenging military training in the world is experienced during what's known as Hell Week. I can say that in church. It's all right. Y'all know what Hell Week is, don't you? If you have a part and parcel of time in the U.S. Navy, you know what it is. It's a five-and-a-half-day endurance test. That's what it is. It's a great challenge where candidates for the Navy SEALs experience the most extreme physical and mental challenges imaginable. They're in constant motion for five and a half days because they only average about one hour of sleep a day over five and a half days. Many of them eventually succumb to hallucinations, but they're in constant motion, constantly running, constantly swimming. They do push-ups, they do set-ups, they paddle around in boats or rafts, they roll in the sand, they slog through the mud, they have to lift these gigantic logs for time in eternity, it seems like to many of them, and the list goes on. It's just constant. Most of the men do begin at some point to experience some form of hallucination in large part because they just are not given an opportunity to rest, to sleep, to recover, and along the way, they're given all kinds of opportunities to bail out. In fact, here's the thing. Their instructors actually encourage them to quit. They make it easy to give up and to walk away. There's a bell set up right there on the beach. And all you have to do is to go up when you've had all you can take and just ring the bell. And they've got donuts and hot coffee waiting for you in the nice, warm, indoors. And as you might expect, that's what most of the candidates do. 75% of them don't make it. They walk away. They ring the bell, and they grab a donut. But for those 25% or fewer that endure, for those who overcome those extreme physical, mental, emotional challenges... They earn a place among the most elite and, and respected of warriors, not only in our country, but in the whole world. These are the people that we turn to in our times of greatest need. But to get there, they have to make it through extreme trial. As James begins the body of his very popular letter, he launches headlong into a word of exhortation, 
no pleasantries, no frivolities, no greetings, no prayers, bang, we're going to talk about enduring through times of trial. That's one of the most demanding issues that believers face today. It's one of the most demanding issues that followers of the Lord Jesus Christ have had to endure for over 2,000 years or around 2,000 years, trials, and the importance of persevering through them, the importance of learning to trust God and believing that God is surely in control even when we don't understand. These are very familiar <clears throat> words at the beginning of James. Let's read beginning here in verse number two. And I'm sure that most of you in the house and those of you watching online will recognize the language. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now jump down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Father, we pray that you'll take these timeless words today and apply them to our lives and hearts. Would you do that, Father? Because we need them. Life itself is a trial, composed of all kinds of trials, and we all experience them, and we all need to endure. So help us to rely on the Holy Spirit, not only to better understand what you have inspired in the book of James, <clears throat> but to help us to live in a way that demonstrates that we truly trust God. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Now, there's no question that the dreaded matter of believers and the trials we face are front and center here right at the beginning of James. But here's the thing. Uh, when most people look at the language of what we just read, if I were to ask you, what's the primary subject of what's going on here? The, most of you would probably say trials, right? This is all about trials, not particularly. Let me tell you what it's more about even than trials. Y'all listening, say amen. Endurance. The primary emphasis here is endurance. We take it for granted in a sin-fallen, broken world that we're going to face trials of various kinds. That should be no surprise to anybody. What's of critical importance, though, to a believer who experiences the inevitability of trials is to prove their faith genuine by never giving up. And so I believe the primary emphasis here is endurance. Three times overtly in the verses that we've read this morning, and four, if you take another phrase and imply it, the concept of steadfastness is mentioned. Steadfastness, it's a word that can be translated endurance, it could be translated perseverance, it can be translated persistence. It carries with it this idea of just staying at it, of never giving up. To endure is to, is to bear up under a heavy load. Have you ever watched these strongman competitions on television where the guys lift up these massive stones or these massive logs or these implements that just weigh a blooming ton and then they have to start walking a specific distance with them and once they reach a certain point, 
They have satisfied the nature of the course and they can drop the weight. Well, this is the idea of endurance. You've got to carry the load and you've got to carry it for a particular period of time. That's what James is getting at here when he says to remain steadfast as we endure the inevitable trials of life. So that's our theme this morning. Does that make sense? Our theme is endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. And what I'd like to do in the few minutes we have is give you four critical dimensions or components of this endurance that James takes time to highlight for us. The first is simply our need for endurance. We have a need for endurance. And that's because the Christian life by definition, contrary to what a lot of Christian groups teach, is not a cakewalk. It's not a walk in the park. It's an obstacle course that's kind of more like a triathlon than it is this nice cruise down a river or a walk through a flower-filled park. And because of that, we have a great need in our spiritual life, and it is the need to endure. Verse 2 begins one of the most familiar statements in the New Testament, maybe one of the most familiar in the whole Bible. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Would you say it out loud? Steadfastness. So right out of the gate, probably because James's church, remember, is scattered all over the blessed world. There has been persecution that's broken out in Jerusalem, there at the local church that James served as the chief elder over, the senior pastor. And because of that, many of his congregates have had to scatter all across the Mediterranean basin. And they're enduring persecution for their faith, even where they are. It probably wasn't as sharp as it would have been by remaining in Jerusalem, but they're having to go through it in a Greco-Roman world where the gospel seemed to be foolishness to the sophisticated Greeks and Romans of the day. Now, they experienced quite a bit of it. And so that's probably the reason that's the first thing that he talks about as he begins this sermonic letter. The word translated trial there is a word that you find frequently in the New Testament. And it simply refers to a situation of some kind that causes some degree of pain or some degree of challenge. The word can also be translated test. So a trial is a test and a test is a trial. And here's the thing, sometimes God leads his kids right in the middle of one. God's gonna test your faith. That should not come as a shock to anybody. If you don't believe that, just look at the life of Abraham, look at the life of Moses, look at the life of just about every important biblical character in the Old Testament, and their lives underscore and underlie the principal truth that God will test your faith. He will do it early in your faith walk, and he will do it often throughout your walk of faith. From Abraham to Joseph to Job to Daniel, God tests the faith of those who belong to him, and that's why the Bible says we ought not be what? We ought not be surprised whenever we find ourselves in a trial. First Peter 4 and verse 12, for example, beloved, that's us, the church, the people of God. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So trials are common to all of us. James says, when you meet trials. He doesn't say, count it all joy if a trial comes upon you. He says, count it all joy 
when you meet various trials. The ESV uses the word meet. The Greek word literally is translated when you fall into various trials. I believe that's exactly what the King James Bible says. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Trials can be like a sinkhole, can't they? You don't see them coming. And that's what knocks us for a loop. I forget who said it, but it's absolutely true. It's not the hard punch that knocks you out, the one that you don't see coming. And trials can be like one of those tiger traps in the jungle. You know, you dig a hole in the ground, you cover it over with all the sticks and foliage. And if you walk right on top of it, you're gonna fall all the way in, you're gonna get caught. And trials are a lot like that. We tend to fall into them unexpectedly because they are a regular part of life. And James is very general here. He doesn't define the kind of trial because they can be specific to the individual and they can certainly change over time and they do. Count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. And so he's not even gonna define what they are because they could be just about anything. Anybody in the house ever lost a job unexpectedly? That's a trial. Anybody here had trouble with rebellious kids? That's a trial. Anybody in here had trouble with rebellious parents? Like when they turned 78, amen. That can be a trial. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Death of a loved one. We had one of our most faithful members pass away suddenly just last week. He's only in the hospital about 36 hours. Just that fast. That's a trial. A natural disaster. Oh, we've lived through some of those. That can be a trial. Religious persecution. That's what James's audience, that's probably first and foremost on James's mind, struggling on account of your faith, because that's principally what his people were doing, although they probably had economic challenges in settling into new places and relational challenges in settling into new places, all of those kinds of things. But the thing to notice here is that while trials are common, trials are necessary because trials produce endurance. You'll never learn to have endurance apart from times of stress because endurance is produced in a believer's life in much the same way that a muscle is developed in your body. You can't see it today because I'm wearing a jacket, but my arms are quite muscular, as you could imagine. And that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen, man. You've got to go to the gym. And you've got to train the muscle. You've got to strain the muscle. You have to stress the muscle. And trials are like that. They're what produce endurance. If you haven't ran in a while, you'll do good to run a half a mile without stopping. But if you keep at it, at it pretty soon you'll be running a mile, and then pretty soon you'll run two. And then you'll be able to run a 5K, and then maybe if you keep pushing it, you'll build up enough resistance. You can do a 10K or even a half marathon. It doesn't happen quickly. It requires time to build up that necessary wind resistance in order to travel longer and longer and longer distances. And so trials serve a refining process, kind of the way you purify a metal. You put the fire to it. You melt it down. And it's tough when the Lord starts to melt you down. But what happens during those times where you learn dependence on him is the impurities begin to rise to the surface and the Lord can skim them away. And what's left behind is something more pure 
than was the case before. And that's why God will carefully measure out times of trial, times of testing in the lives of his people. He doesn't do it to harm us. He does it to temper us. He does it to strengthen us so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us, Hebrews chapter 12. Notice 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. The apostle Paul writes, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Y'all see that? Say amen. So that's the value of trials. They turn your attention away from yourself, place your attention squarely on the Lord so that you can gain greater strength for the continuing journey that every faith walk is. So trials are necessary. They're necessary because we need endurance to finish the journey strong, all right? The second thing we see is the attitude that we need in developing faithful endurance. And that attitude, of course, you know, it's often said that success is 90% mental. Have you ever heard that before? Success, 90% mental. And that kind of is true in your spiritual life as well. I mean, attitude is everything. And here's the thing, you are responsible for your own attitude. Y'all have heard me say that before, haven't you? I am responsible for my own, would you say that with me? I am responsible for my own attitude. And what's the attitude that we're supposed to carry with us in our times of trial, in our times of testing? Joy. Say what, preacher? That's what I said. And I said it because he said it. Count it all joy. Count is a, uh, an accounting term, logizomai. Consider it all joy. Count it all joy. Ledger it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Pure joy, that's the idea. Complete and total joy, which just seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because we tend to naturally react exactly opposite when we face trials of various kinds. We moan, we grieve, we become angry, we become bitter, we become resentful. And yet God says, consider it pure joy. Now that's not to say that joy is the only thing a believer is supposed to experience in the various trials of life. Uh, Nor is James implying that we're supposed to be giddy and just giggle our way through a trial all the time. No, you're going, most of the time, if it's a a serious enough trial, you're going to cry your way through the trial. But did you know that you can cry your way through a trial and still be joyful at the same time? James doesn't say be happy, be completely happy as you face trials of various kinds. He doesn't put a smiley face emoji next to this verse. The larger point is to understand that joy is not happiness and happiness is is not joy. Happiness is environmental. It's conditional. It's dependent on circumstances. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and the greatest of these is love. That's why it's listed first. But what's listed second? Joy. And so joy is a spiritual fruit. It's It's not... Uh, an emotion like happiness is that's environmental, conditional upon given circumstances. Joy is the state of being of a believer who's been changed by the grace of Christ. The Greek word grace, charis, and the Greek word joy, kara, are kissing cousins. 
And so you'll never experience joy if you don't understand grace because joy is the direct fruit of the grace of God. The grace which saves us, the grace which preserves us, the grace that sustains us in times of trial. Because of God's grace, we can experience joy even when we live in the midst of pain. And that's predicated on our knowledge of a God who saved us in spite of our sinfulness. And the attitude of believer is, if God can save me in the face of the depth of my sin, God can deliver me in the face of the depth of my trial. I just made that up right there. And that will preach. It's based on our understanding of God. This was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so when we learn to face trials with joy, it's because we know that if God can raise the dead, God can surely deliver me. Somebody say amen this morning. My son is a third year student at Sanford uh, Divinity School, their Beeson Divinity School at Sanford University. And he's taking a course this semester in biblical preaching with one of the great preachers and one of the great preaching professors in the whole country, if not the world, Dr. Robert K. Smith, African-American, and he can shuck the corn, man, when he brings the word of God. And on the first day of class, they went in there, and Dr. Smith's been doing this a long time. There's about 20 of them in the class, and they think that all it's going to be is kind of a rollout of the course, you know, and the syllabus and all that business, which is kind of perfunctory on the first day of just about any class. And and he does do that. He starts going through it. And he said, now, well, I'm going to go through what we're going to be doing this semester. I'm going to pass around this bowl and there's pieces of paper and then everybody take out a piece of paper. And so he went on, started talking, continuing kind of a real quick version of what they were going to be doing. And once he got through it, he said, everybody got a piece of paper out of that fishbowl. Yeah, everybody had a piece of paper. He said, who's got the fish? There's a fish drawn on one of them. One guy's got the fish. Dr. Smith looked at him and he said, okay, turn to Genesis chapter 12 and in just a few minutes, you're gonna come and preach on Genesis 12. And then he went on and started talking about something else. And none of those guys knew what was getting ready to happen. They're not seasoned preachers, not trained preachers. That, when Seth was telling me that story, that sent skivvies all up and down my backside. That make a seasoned preacher wince. No time to review, no time to do anything. He said that guy's face went white as a ghost and everybody else did too. And finally, when he got through it, Dr. Smith turned to the guy and said, okay, come up here and, and preach to us as long as you want till the bell rings. And he did. And he got through it and he sat back down and he said all the blood started coming back when it was over. All the blood started coming back into that boy's face. And it was all said and done. Seth went over and talked to him. He said, man, what was that? He said, you know what? It scared the life out of me, but now it feels great <laughs> because I did it and I got a compliment from the professor for doing it. You know, that's a trial, <laughs> but good things come from situations like that. They help you be better prepared for greater challenges to come. And that's why you should be joyful even if the tears are falling. Because we don't ever have to doubt that God is constantly at work in our lives. We don't ever have to doubt that. 
Even in the difficult times, we know God is right in the middle of the maelstrom. I, I, anytime somebody comes up to me and they're going through stuff and they ask me to pray for them, I usually, nine and a half times out of every 10, I'll pray that. May this person sense your presence because Lord, we know that you're right in the middle of the mess with them. And trials help develop this overwhelming sense of the presence of God who's not content to leave us where we are but has a plan for our life, namely to grow us into people of gigantic faith where nothing can overwhelm our trust in him. And speaking of that, that brings us thirdly to the goal of faithful endurance. There is a goal in enduring faithfully through the times of trial that you will inevitably face. And that goal is found in verse four. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. There it is. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in what? Say it out loud. Lacking in nothing. Now, this is the intended outcome of the trials we face. And this is why enduring through them is so important for the believer. It's why it's important that we respond in the right way to trial, that we not buckle under the difficulty of trial, while we don't go up to the top of the beach and ring the bell and say, I've had enough. I want a donut and a hot cup of coffee. No, let steadfastness have its full effect. And that full effect, James says, is not some plot of God to harm you. God's actually at work to prosper you, to grow you. And he says that here. So that, that's a purpose statement. Here's the goal that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James tears a page out of Paul's literary playbook there and stacks words and phrases on top of one another. He basically says the same thing three times, that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, that you may be lacking in nothing. And so that's, this is God's goal for your life, and this is why he carefully measures difficult times into your life. Because what God's trying to do is produce what we might call, for lack of a better term, a spiritual completeness in your life that can never be developed if your bank account is constantly six figures and the car runs well all the time and you always have a new one of those and the house is paid off and the job's guaranteed. Now see, what happens in that kind of a situation is you will check out on God. And you know why? Call, you don't need him. You don't need him. You got everything under control. And this is why most of the world is lost because they think they got everything under control. And then... When things get out of control for a lost world, they create a God of their own making so that they can have somebody higher than themselves they can be mad at. Because if God were real, why would he be doing this to me? No, God has a plan. Especially so for the life of those who are his children. 
And every wise parent in here who doesn't have a plan for discipline of their children is not a wise parent at all. Because every wise parent knows if I bail them out of every mess they get themselves into, I don't even want to go there this morning. Y'all don't want me to say this stuff. If you're a parent and you make it your mission in life to remove all pain from the lives of your children, you'll raise very spoiled, entitled kids. Hebrews 12 is a great commentary on this. The Lord disciplines those he loves and those he doesn't discipline aren't his true children. Now, God brings this measure of discipline into our life. Why? To draw us closer to him, to draw us in greater dependence upon him, to remind us that he's God and we're not. And apart from him, as Jesus said, we can do what? Nothing. That's right. And trials are a great reminder of that. But God's doing something even beyond that in you. He's maturing you. He's growing you. And that's God's goal, this spiritual wholeness. This, he wants you to be this person of gigantic faith, not marginal faith. It's okay to come to God with a mustard seed size of faith, but there's something wrong if you've been following after Jesus and your faith is still no bigger than a grain of mustard. That is not God's will. He wants your faith to be the size of the blessed tree for crying out loud. And that's why he operates this way, carefully, appropriately. Not the same for every believer, but God knows you. He's got the hairs on your head numbered. So God's going to work particularly in your life to develop your particular faith in a way that blossoms and grows and is strong. Some modern translations render that first word there that you may be, it says perfect in the ESV. Some of your translations may read mature, but I think perfect is the better translation, uh, primarily because of the latter phrase, so that you may be perfect, complete, that's the word whole, and then the last phrase, lacking in what? Nothing. Well, here's the thing. You can be mature and still be lacking. I know a lot of people, some in this church, that I would consider pretty mature spiritually, but they're not lacking in nothing. They're mature, but they still struggle with lust. They're mature, but they still struggle with anger. They're mature, but they still struggle with patience. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So even though you could say that's a mature person, you can't say they're lacking in nothing, right? So I think the goal here is perfect. In fact, you can go to the Gospel of Matthew. Look at Matthew 5, 48. You therefore, and these are the words of Jesus, the half-brother of James. You therefore must be what? Say it out loud. Be perfect. Same word. Same word here as in the book of James. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is what? Perfect. Well, we're not going to describe God as mature. No, God's perfect. And so the verse doesn't say, be mature as your father is mature. It says, be perfect as your father is perfect. And so that's the goal. God is inching you bit by bit closer toward complete righteousness. We call it Christ-likeness. 
The goal is to look like Jesus. You can't look completely like Jesus until you're perfect like Jesus, lacking in nothing. Think of a diamond, you know. Diamond starts out rough. It's hard to sometimes tell a diamond from a piece of quartz when it's brought out of the earth. But then that diamond is put in the hands of a trained jeweler who takes what? Takes a knife and he starts to cut. And the diamond starts to take what? Shape. And through several facets, all of them cut by a very sharp knife, what eventually results? An object of priceless worth. Great value. I mean, it was great value when it was pulled, pulled out of the ground. But once the trained jeweler put the knife to it, it became something even more valuable. Now, here's the thing. We're all broken by sin. Anybody in the room consider themselves to be absolutely perfect this side of heaven? No. No. And we won't be because the world is a fallen place. But I'm afraid far too many Christians have used that as an excuse to lower the bar. No, you don't lower the bar. You know what the goal is. The goal is to look absolutely like Christ. Even James later on will say, for we all stumble in many ways. That's in chapter three. So he'll admit it. But he still uses the word. God takes us through these times of testing to shape us more into the image of Christ. We call it at Hillcrest, becoming like Christ. And it is a process all throughout our life. So God sends trials with this goal of perfecting us into people of complete, total character where no biblical thing, no spiritual fruit is lacking. That's the intended full effect of the trials we face. Y'all still with me so far? Would you say amen? So one last thing I want to get you. This would make a sermon in and of itself. But I told you, James is a shotgun preacher. He doesn't conclude his statement about trials until down in verse 12. He stops and chases two rabbits. And we're going to chase them over the next two Sundays. But if all we did was leave you in the middle of a trial with these nicks and cuts all over you, you might leave less than enthused. So let's complete the teaching, go down to verse 12, and look at the reward for faithful endurance. That's made clear here. Blessed is the man who remains what? Said out loud, steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The first thing, I got to be quick here, but notice the change of tense. James moves from trials in the first uh, verses two through four to trial singular here. It's, it's as if all of life is a test. And I think that's right. James is classifying, this is like the capital T test, is just being alive in a broken world. 
That's the, there is a blessing of, of an eternal reward to those who remain steadfast through the big trial, which is a broken life in a broken world. And the reward is what James calls the crown of life, which is eternal life in the age to come. James not talking about a crown of gold, a bejeweled crown like the monarch in England would wear. The word that's used here, Stephanos, is, a, is the, um, the garland, the, 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 the laurel wreath that was given to athletes of the day who had finished first in whatever endurance contest they were competing in, whether it be a sprint or a long run or a, a discus throw or a javelin throw, whatever the case might be, the winner would receive a crown. He would go up to the, what was known as the bema, the judgment seat, where the judge would preside. And he would kneel before the bema, and the judge would place a crown on his head. Does this sound familiar to anybody in the spiritual life? See, that's what we have to look forward to as well. James couches this conclusion to this teaching on trials as a beatitude, he begins it with the word blessed, much like Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the beatitudes, all of them beginning with the same word, blessed. I'm telling you, James was very familiar with the teaching of his brother. Blessed, sufficient, inwardly contented is the one who remains steadfast under trial, the one who stands the test. Why? Because he has a confidence in a better day to come. By his endurance, he will one day receive the crown of life. Now, let me be very clear because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. I'm not saying that we're saved because we endure through the tough times of life. Everybody hear me say amen. No, we're saved by trusting Christ plus nothing else. What James is saying, what I'm saying, and what the rest of the New Testament affirms is that endurance is indeed the fruit of genuine salvation. Those who are born again by faith in Christ will endure through the trials of life, and those who endure will in fact stand before the judge and receive a crown. And that's why we're encouraged to remain steadfast because here's the thing, not every believer endures through the trials of life, not every professing believer. Y'all do know there are lots of people who profess Christ as Savior and Lord. 60, 70% of the United States professes Christ as Savior and Lord. You believe that many people are saved? No. And they're the ones that won't be around when times get too tough. No. Some who profess Christ will fall away. They'll ring the bell and they'll go eat a donut and drink a hot cup of coffee away from those that at one time they call brothers and sisters in the Lord. And when they do, what are they going to show? Their faith wasn't real. It was a false faith. It was a cultural faith. It was a professed faith. But it, there was no possessed faith. No, those who love God, trust God. And those who trust God, 
stand the test. They prove their faith through the painful seasons of life, through all of life itself. And that's how you know a person is genuinely saved. I mean, the way you know a person is genuinely saved is you watch them throughout the ups and the downs of life. The people who are genuinely saved are the people who never give up. They never give up. They arrive at the finish line and they die in the Lord. That's how you know. They die as victors rather than as victims. Look at Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. What? Say it out loud. Firm to the, that's how you know. You never release your faith. You never bail out on your faith. You never give up on your faith. You remain true to the end. Or as Jesus said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So this is our need for faithful endurance, our attitude in faithful endurance, the goal of faithful endurance, and thank God we have a reward at the end of faithful endurance, which is a crown, eternal life itself. The Apostle Paul came to the end of his life, a life that was marked by one trial after another, after another, after another. And do you remember his testimony? He said, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a what? A crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. And to that, James would add, not only to those who've loved his appearing, but to those who have loved him and who've proven their love for him by enduring through the trials of life with faithfulness and with joy. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Never quit and never lose your joy. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.